pretty awesome. So I think I'll begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. My message is about how the gospel creates family. And it's one of the crucial elements of the gospel that is almost always looked looked over, or I should say overlooked. And yet, uh, in the New Testament, it's the major fruit of the gospel, that it creates new people. Not just new individuals, but a supernatural family. it's, It's one of the most poignant and powerful expressions of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and ascension. That a new people in relationship with one another has been created. And um, Jesus said, they'll know you're, you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's family covenant relationship. And yet, like I said, this is one of the things that to me is attacked the most, especially in our culture. We remain divided even the way we do church oftentimes. Even when we're not in conflict We have found sophisticated ways to be divided so that we choke out both the testimony and the power of God to our city. And so the whole point of this series of teachings is to recalibrate. So I'm starting very consciously at the foundational level in these first two teachings. Number one, just getting in us a spirit of wisdom and revelation regarding Jesus himself. That if we're Jesus followers, we're not just devoted to a religious icon. We're devoted to a way of life that puts everybody else first. And if that spirit of Christ infuses a community, we can do absolutely anything in our city that God requires us to do. If it doesn't infuse our community, and I don't think this will happen for us, but speaking in principle, if that spirit of that Christ does not infuse our community of faith, then we will fail as the city church in terms of the New Testament vision. We we might have great and successful outreaches, but we won't express the Christ that lives inside of us if we don't take off our outer garment, so to speak, of our dignity and lower ourselves to wash the feet of one another and those who need us. So it's very important that we keep that in mind as the cornerstone of everything. And do you see the vibe I'm trying to give when I talk about that? When we talk about Jesus, He's not just our ethereal friend that like, we put on a shelf and have a devotional life to. He is a way of life that's offensive to our natural way of thinking. But that's what it means to be dedicated to Jesus. That's why, like I said last time, Paul said... I I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's the image He has of Jesus. So when that Jesus Christ lives inside of Him, that's the life He lives. He lives a life of love that gives itself up for others. And that's what Paul did. Paul actually transformed his own social station to be an apostle. He turned down a life that had certain privileges and resources specifically so he could take the gospel. And he lived that way among the cities where he brought his gospel. And in fact, it brought him criticism at times. And so that that's the attitude of the Messiah that we serve, though. And that's the spirit of the gospel that our city needs in this hour. So the, the second part of the teaching then remains foundational. Um, I'm, I'm in, in the first teaching talking about Jesus, I was trying to unveil at least a a couple of aspects about Jesus himself, because the gospel is Jesus in words. He is the word. Well, secondarily, I want to look at the gospel message, the, the, the further articulation of Jesus himself and what that implies for our life as a spiritual family. And I had planned to speak on this issue about the reconciliation power of the gospel I had planned on speaking about this, you know, the moment that we thought it would be good to have these recalibration meetings. This would be my second message. You know, uh, casting the gospel in a light that shows that its pinnacle expression is creating family out of people that would otherwise not be reconciled to them. Even if they were at peace, they may not have been reconciled as family. 
But the gospel doesn't tolerate that. The gospel brings it all together in Christ. So that was my original intention. And so it's interesting the timing of where this falls now on the Sunday following such uh, protesting and social issues in our city. And um, I risk sounding like I'm just giving a cliche to a very deep and complicated social problem in our nation. But I say it anyway because it's true, and that's one of the reasons why it can become a cliche, because it is true and it has to be said. And yet, we can say it lightly or we can say it deeply. I'm trying to say it deeply, but we all need to go deeper. When I say that our city needs the gospel of the kingdom, that's the ultimate solution. There are other solutions that need to be offered in wisdom for our city and for the racial divides that have plagued our, our nation from the very beginning. But deeper than that, the church must be the church. The church has to be the church. We can't just give it rhetoric. We have to tap into the power of the blood of Jesus that transforms individuals and creates supernatural community among its members and constantly in the harvest field gaining more. So with that... Um, I'm starting with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. My theme is that the gospel creates family. And I'll, I'll hit that more as we go. But the title that Faith was asking me for is The Church of the City. The Church of the City. Whenever the New Testament has a letter written to a church, it's not to King's people. <laughs> it's not the First Baptist. It's not to Fire. It's not to Refuge. It's not to the United Methodist Church or any other name of a church that actually has believers. There are some that don't even have believers. So I'm talking about the brand names that actually represent at least largely people who believe in Jesus. The letters were always written to the church of the city. Now, someone might say, well, what about when you have tens and tens and tens of thousands of Christians? You can't all meet in a house church. Actually, yes, you can. You can have thousands and thousands of house churches throughout the city. To me, that's the ideal. Now, I'm not first talking about format. I'm talking about Jesus and the gospel. I would talk about format down the road. Um, but still, I think the ideal would be maintaining the family. But then these, these families scattered throughout a city still have connections with one another. The connections that you and I would enjoy in a, in a, a smaller unit setting where anywhere between a few and 20-something or 50-something met in a home, just that communion that we would have as individuals would exist between house churches throughout the city. I'll tell you what, it sounds wild, but we'd actually be more organized if we organically were more city-oriented with house churches scattered throughout, led by deacons and elders who carried on the traditions of the apostles. Because elders go in a city, not with a denominational church. Elders were a city position from the Old Testament on. The elders sat in the gates. And there was a loose but definite organic organization in the way they were re related. Even though the organization wasn't imposed upon them, it was there in the spirit. There, believe me, that's solidarity. There's a... There's a, a family and in a larger unit, to use Old Testament terminology, there's a tribal solidarity that we experience when we rally around Jesus as family. So that even the families scattered throughout a city will have solidarity with one another. They will know of one another more than we know of one another through our denominational names and social media. We would know more about one another. We'd have more of a connection if we yielded more to the Lordship of Jesus, the way we related to one another as a family in the city. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to get there. I actually have some ideas of how we're going to get there. We need apostles. And we probably could use some serious pressure to force us into the mode that works, though I hate to say it out loud. I think it's going to come about, maybe not in my generation, but it will come about. But 
but probably not without much pain. But I prefer that not be the case. I prefer we just all embrace God's wisdom, humble ourselves like children, and become the church that God always called us to be. But with the revelation we have and the wisdom we have, I believe that we should do as our work, we should do all we can to cultivate within our circles and then within our mission this New Testament vision. Okay? I mean, whenever Paul would write, even to a region, like in Galatians and Ephesians, he's writing to regions, not just cities. He's recognizing the work of different house churches working together. And then he would apply it to whatever house church is listening to him. Like in Ephesians, he would just speak with the people and say, therefore tolerate one another and love one another and be patient one another in Ephesians 4. So after he gives them the grand vision in Ephesians 1 through 3, he gives the the specific people in a church, now you guys reconcile. Or in Philippians, he would say, you two ladies must reconcile. And if there's any consolation of Christ, in Christ, those of you who are uh, in conflict with one another besides these two sisters, you all must reconcile because of the implications in the larger city and to the powers of the air. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. Our conflicts are not like the conflicts outside the church. Our conflicts give the devil authority in our city. The conflicts outside are expressions of demonic activity. But we don't have authority over that if we can't get our act together on a small scale. So what I want us to do is to cultivate the micro level, but with a heart that says we're going to impact the sky and we're going to impact the rest of our city. We're not doing it for us so we can have our little flora no more. We're doing it with a city vision. We want to do what we do in this work to impact our city. If we can't do it within here, we can't do it out there. So we want to do it here. With the mindset of expansion of the kingdom. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to people of the flesh, infants and Messiah. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. For you're still fleshly, since there's jealousy, strife among you. Aren't you fleshly? Aren't you walking like mere mortals? Mere humans. Mere humans is the word he uses. Just humans. Which means we're, truly, we're superhuman. But superhuman has its application in our relationships. And then mission. So here's what I'm talking about, verse 4. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. But that's what I'm talking about. Isn't that an expression of you just walking like mortals that you have these different labels and you rally around celebrity teachers rather than Christ it's a mark of immaturity so he goes on to talk about the roles of these leaders in the next several verses he's using the metaphor in verse 9 of co-workers in the field of the Lord typically there's a agricultural metaphor to express apostolic ministry And then at the end of verse 9, he switches to a building metaphor. You're God's field, God's building. Verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each person must be careful how he builds on it. So there's two things I want to bring out of this verse. Number one, that Paul's using the metaphor of a temple in the city of Corinth. Because Paul saw himself as a temple builder. Now we got to go to Corinth this past summer, and one of the striking things of that city, or any ancient city, especially from the Greco-Roman world, is how many pagan temples are present in any given ancient city. It's filled with these different gods where there was a structure that gave it identity and then a statue dedicated to that god and that was a a figure of that god or goddess in the city. So Paul comes into Corinth and says, well, I'm going to build the temple of the living god here, but I'm not going to use brick and mortar or stone. 
I'm going to use people, and their God will not be seen with human eyes, but will be seen, embodied by his people. I'm a temple builder, and I'm going to build a temple that's a rebuke to the other temples of that city. It's a powerful metaphor. The second reason why I bring that out is because Paul says plainly, and this is in the Bible, so it's very important for everyone here, for every minister of the gospel, every pastor or whatever, we must take tremendous care on how we build God's temple. God's temple is holy. And any influence anyone has, which is why James says, as teachers, let there not be too many, because you're going to be judged more strictly than other people. But even people with prophetic words, people who are just influencing the community in any way, let alone leaders, anyone, Paul says, take great, great care how you build. So for me, this is very sobering. I want to take great care in how I offer my contribution to build the house of God. And so must the leaders of our city. You can't just shoot off with your own philosophy or denominational mindset. It may seem right to you, but what if it's not scriptural? The apostle in these texts says, be careful how you build God's house. And it's the same with the people that are, that are not necessarily profiled leaders. They don't necessarily have notoriety, but they have influence in the house of God. We should take care how we influence one another to build God's house. Because there's only one God. And there's only one temple of this God. And I don't think he, it's pleasant to his soul to see us implicitly shifting the metaphor of temple from his people to a building and slapping a foreign name on it. That's not the way he builds his temple. Now, I don't have a problem with using buildings. That's not my point. Just because there's a building doesn't make it sinful. We all use buildings. If, that's not the issue. The issue is there's a subtle shift from taking seriously that God dwells in a people that are unified to God dwells in something you go to and you attend. It's an important shift. So I'm, I'm saying this as a mature man. Not as a little kid with a little revelation who's just always whining at the institutional church. That spirit of criticism is not the spirit with which we build the house of God. But there's still truth in the contrast. So we make the difference not to criticize the others, but because we live under the evaluation of the Lord, and we're going to be judged on how we built God's temple. So I say that for our sakes, to be sober and not critical, but like the Jesus who washes feet. But still we're builders, we have to build. And I also say it because I want us to build for the sake of the larger city. To serve the people that might not have the revelation we have, not to contrast with them. Amen. Church of the city. And there's another reason why I'm bringing up this passage and metaphor. Because of another passage we're going to read from the Old Testament. Oh yeah. Well... There's only one foundation in verse 11. Jesus Christ. We talked about the Spirit of Christ, the presence, lordship, and servanthood of Christ last time. Verse 12. Now if any man builds on the, that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each person's work will become evident. The word there in Greek is very strong. It means public. It will be publicly manifest someday. This is almost enough to make me, make me say, do I really want to continue doing this work? I mean, in ver down in verse 18, um, oh, it's not 18, it's 17, sorry. Just skip ahead a little bit. Well, we'll get there, we'll get there, I'm sorry. Okay, so there's the precious materials, gold, silver, precious stones. Then there's the, 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 the temporal combustible material of wood, hay, and straw. Verse 13, each person's work will become evident or public because the day will show it. Because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. Now remember, he's talking to church members who are wrongly influencing one another toward an early form of denominationalism. 
So he's not just talking to leaders, though leaders are included, of course. He's talking just with the church people who are starting to denominate. This is a very sobering passage of Scripture. So my point is it applies to everyone. In verse 14, every person's work which he has built, if any person's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any person's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Don't you know that you, and that's plural, don't you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? As Americans, we most often view this through the lens of individual piety. But Paul is speaking to a unit because the the people of his day would normally hear things and think of themselves always in the context of their associations and relationships. He is speaking to them as a unit. Don't you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? There's a special and ultimate manifestation of God's presence when he, uh, when, when the people of God come together in unity. Unified by Christ. Not just natural affection and friendship, but unified by Christ. There's a powerful manifestation of the Spirit that will, is found in no other way, including the most powerful revivals you will ever read of in history. Those are visitations, usually, usually. They are not habitations. This is something extraordinary that Paul is referring to here. So on the negative side of it then is verse 17. If any person destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Because the temple of God is holy and that's what you are. Now my point in in highlighting that verse is not to put some heavy on us like we're in danger of destroying the temple of God. I don't think we are. But, but it's still in the scripture and underlines just how holy this issue is, the church as the temple of God. Rarely does Paul speak an oracle like this that sounds so prophetic and immediately judgmental and negative in the middle of just, I mean, he could be, you know, he's, he's not shy about the truth, but it's rare he says something like this. And you wouldn't have, ex- I wouldn't have expected it exactly right here. It's like, okay, I understand the poor influence, but give us, you know, sometimes we influence one another or leaders can start to help denominate us, and I understand. But, you know, give us a little bit of a break. Paul's like, actually, this is holy ground we're talking about. This is extremely important to God. This is God's one and only house. God might visit the houses that you build, but he'll live in the house that you let him build. This is very important to him. It's his one and only house. He doesn't dwell anywhere else. Not in this ultimate sense. He's present to everything. But as far as fully dwelling in and expressing himself fully through, that's only the church. Shoo! There's an amen right there. I mean, Jesus is not appropriately expressed except through a unified body. It does not happen. When you, even when you come into a room, you feel the presence of God and God's visiting in a revival service. I want that. I, I would love to see stadiums filled with people in the presence of God and miracles. But for the Christ to be expressed according to the will of God, we must have people blended together in the Spirit as family, expressing the Christ fully. There's no other way. He just doesn't look like himself without expressing himself through a body. Not just on a platform in front of people, but through a body. Which is why the gospel actually creates such a people. At the core of my message is that point. The gospel doesn't just save souls. That's point one out of three. The gospel transforms lives. And then the gospel creates a new society. I don't mean a secular society. I mean a holy society blending together people of different ethnic and every other kind of background that would otherwise have no business or even power to dwell together as family because the powers of the air keep them divided. The gospel always goes to that pinnacle point. 
There must be blended family in the Holy Spirit for Christ to be expressed. No one else can unify the nations the way Jesus can. Genesis chapter 11. Beware of the dogs. Uh, I don't know how much that applies to our dog, but I wanted to bring some kind of biblical point from that. Genesis chapter 11. This is um, the Old Testament story here that I was referring to. You, 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 you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. I wanted to read it. Uh, I felt like the Lord put this on my heart. And I even suspect, you know, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, he's referring mostly to the temple of God. But I, le- I believe there's an illusion, there's a, a, a slight echo of this story that Paul is contrasting with. Because I also believe the, the, the temple of the Lord is a contrast to this also. So, no problem. Anybody else want water? (laughs) No problem whatsoever. Uh, The whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. And they used tar for mortars. Now listen to this. They said, come on, let's build a city for ourselves. Now, what they're about to do is so awesome and so impressive that God has to touch it and scatter them so that they will not fulfill their potential without Him. Now, they won't fulfill their total potential without God anyway. But they will fulfill some potential without God that would be too much for the earth to bear. That's how powerful our unity is, even without God. Where God has to judge it, so it won't corrupt the earth that much, that will be too much to bear. God saying, I won't be able to accomplish my plan if they get that much together. Serious investment God made in the human race. John G. Lake used to be in awe at the power of the psychics. Not because it was anything compared to the power of Christ. That was laughable to him. But for what they could accomplish just supernaturally, without Christ, tapping into their own human potential, in union with demonic spirits, he says, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. God knows what unity can create on the earth. This is like his third major response to sin. The first one was in the garden and the curse had to come. It was done. There was an infection in the human race and an infection in the earth. And even the stewardship of the human race over the earth, that relationship is affected. So there's the curse. And then, of course, there was the flood where God had to renew everything. He had to destroy almost the whole race and start over from one family. So we're not just descendants of Adam. We're descendants of Noah. Did you know? Uh. (laughs) Do you like that, Abby? And now there's this, it's, it's the sinful union of sinful people can create levels of, of, of corruption that are too much for the earth to bear. God's plan wouldn't be able to be accomplished. So we had to touch these, this, this unified global community, had to touch them and scatter them so there were divisions and distinctions. And then he chose a family out of them, one family, to focus on and bring about his plan, which when the Spirit was poured out, they all spoke with other tongues, like this story. And it brought God's kind of unity to his covenant people. So the one, one of the things they wanted to do, which was for their own glory and in defiance of the one God, was build a city for themselves. This is in contrast to the holy city, New Jerusalem, that comes down from God and is a gift to the human race. Also something we're contributing to. But we contribute the, when we build Paul's way in 1 Corinthians 3. Does that make sense? We're contributing, we're partnering with God. 
But whether He's doing it through us or not, it's still His gift in His city. It's interesting in the, in the book of Revelation, it's Babylon that's the city, metaphorically, that's defiant against the holy city and has re-emerged in spirit in the very last days, in the days of tribulation. It's again the humanism, the sinful unity. You know, I've heard some Christian preachers mock the idea that there's going to be one world government in the end. It's like, this is part of the biblical narrative. It's, 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 most, it's almost certainly going to happen again to some degree as part of the very last judgment on the earth so that humanism, that is the human spirit unified against God, it can exhaust all its resources and express itself to the full so God can say it's still not eternal. And then Jesus returns and brings His kingdom in His city. But still... It's interesting that there's a vision for the city among these people. Let's build ourselves a city. And a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And then, let us make for ourselves a name. So these the three expressions of humanism and human pride in this, this story here. And forgive me. Okay, there it is. Okay. So we want a city. We want a tower to reach to heaven, and we want a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come. Let's go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth and from there Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. My point is now Yahweh has His people with His name his temple to replace this tower and his city, the holy city, New Jerusalem. In the meantime, the church is the church of one city in any given city. And I want us to become that church, not just King's people. When I pray for King's people, I pray for you by name. I pray for the churches. I also pray for the saints of the city. It's urgent that we become the church of the city. Even if we're doing our work, to cultivate it on a micro level, we want to do it for the sake of our city and the testimony of God here rather than just to have our little expression, us for and no more. So here, here's the three levels where the gospel works, as we said before. And this is in the book of Romans and it's also scattered throughout the New Testament. The first thing the gospel does, uh, according to the first chapters of Romans, is give us justification by faith. It washes every soul clean when we simply give ourselves to Jesus in faith. We're justified and we have covenant with God. Amen? As individuals. The second thing it does, and this is the second work of the gospel that we want to embrace, is that we are not only justified, but we are transformed into sons and daughters of God. We become supernatural Human beings, individual. That's Romans 6 through 8. We're no longer born of Adam. So actually you back up into chapter 5, halfway into chapter 8. We're no longer the children of Adam. We're the children of the Messiah. In the sense of, that's the cut we're born from at that point. We're transformed. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. We're now supernatural people. We have various gifts to express that. So there should be a confidence in the relationship we have with God and a confidence in our victory over sin in our ability to live the life that He's called us to live. Whether it's healing the sick or healing divisions. We're supernatural people. We have power. We're transformed. We're not the people we used to be. And we have to be immersed in that new identity. But then there's the third dimension of the gospel. 
that's expressed in Romans 9 through 11, that somehow in the Messiah, Jews and nations are brought together in the same family. Now listen, part two is that you and I individually are transformed into a different human. Amen? We are given a new seed. We're a new species. But God doesn't understand individuals getting transformed without therefore there becoming a new nation being created. He doesn't think individually. He thinks, y'all are separate bricks. I'm going to build a temple. What good is a brick? He doesn't think that way. Oh, y'all are great. You like that John G. Lake book? That's awesome. He was planting churches in South Africa. He wasn't just doing exploits. So you could all go to his church. He was transforming units of people. God is a temple builder. So when he thinks you and I are a new creation, he doesn't just think new creation. For those of you listening by digital recording, I'm pointing at an individual right now. He doesn't just think individual. He doesn't just say new creation here. He says, this is the new creation. Because if you don't get this right, you don't understand what I did here. Come on, that's important. The whole reason why we're cut out of the quarry, or at the quarry, cut out of the main rock, is so we could be built together somewhere else. There ain't no other reason. God builds temples. First Peter chapter 2, we're living stones built on one foundation. Man, that's a powerful image. So to take the reverse of Babel and the tower they wanted to build in their city for their name, we have the power to glorify the name of God in our city. We can't do it without being unified. Our power's compromised. I mean, the Corinthians lacked no gift. 1 Corinthians 1.7, they fell short in no gift. They could give words of knowledge, they could perform miracles, they could perform healing, yet they were still burying one another. Their own brothers and sisters were dying and some were sick and they couldn't get them healed. Because at the Lord's Supper covenant meal, which should be the time to express this unity, they were divided. And the judgment of God, just like Babel said, in a kind of reverse way where it does not belong in the house of God. It's like, you're not going to have wholeness in this body if you don't have wholeness in this body. You guys say, oh, well, this is how we need revival. You just, you, wanna, you just need revival? Is that all you need? My whole point in cutting you out of the rock is to build you with other people. You ain't, you're, it's the whole point. You, you can't be, you can't give fame to the name of King Jesus without fitting together as a unit. He's not built that way, even though he's not built, he's eternal. It's not his nature. So he's not going to, He's not going to circumvent his own nature and his ways just to bless y'all. His eternal purpose is a temple. I don't know if you remember the, the, the story of the building of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6. It's interesting, it happened 480 years after they came out of Egypt. Which is like, it, that's 12 it's just interesting, the math is 12 times 40. 12 40-year generations later. There's just something nice and neat about that. Something with the number 12, speaking of nation and authority and apostles and a generation of 40, of course, you know, that that many generations after their development, it's time to build a temple as a symbol of God's dwelling among His people, which is fulfilled in Christ and in us. Fulfilled in us. But it says in verse 6, I'm pretty sure it's verse 6. You don't have to turn there now, but you can if you want, but you can write the reference, right? It's just one verse, it mentions that they were cutting the stones from the quarry, uh, in the quarry, from the larger mounds they were accessing, right? They were cutting them from the larger rock and preparing them at the quarry. That's the word there in Hebrew. is a strong word. It literally means prepare to make complete. So each stone was individually made complete at the quarry so that when it was brought to the temple area to fit together with the other stones, 
No metal tools were needed to fit them together. So the sound of clanking and all that noise was over at the quarry. But when those stones were to be fit together, they were cut so perfectly, they just fit together as the temple was built. It was like there was this holy hush where the temple was built. It's like metal didn't belong there. You needed metal over here, and it was noisy. But when they fit together, there was something so sweet and special about it that it was, there was a hush about it. You could, you could almost hear the silence. You could hear the clanging over here when it was thing was made, each rock was made. But then when it's brought together, it's almost like these hush tones, these sounds that were more hush. There wasn't, there wasn't a clank that kind of broke like a, like a pointed metal instrument into your little oral atmosphere, like, you know, that interruptive thing. But more something like you can sleep to. You know, these hushed tones of sliding things together like, or if you shut a car door not too hard and it's a really well-built, solid car, it gives you that feeling of, boom. You know what I'm talking about? There's like a, a compression and it fits just perfect and you feel the, the little bit of pressure just coming together. It's like that's the way those stones came together. Just And they built this temple out of these stones that were cut perfectly. The main point in that is this. The whole reason why we were cut out of the rock and fashioned into the image of Christ as individuals is so that we could be built into the temple of the Lord. It wasn't just so that we could be saved and get to go to heaven. It's so that we could give Yahweh His tower in our city and claim it to be His city and give Him a name. But it can't happen unless we're all fit together. Each of us a stone fit together to make one temple. We can't make a temple unless we're fit together. So every stone has to be cut, but it's always for the sake of the whole. Amen? Every stone is forged by the the tools of God to build the character of Christ in us. And I think we should all joyfully embrace that identity as stones that fit together as a whole. Each stone should be glad (laughs) thank you but aside from that silly joke I've told too many times we have we really have to embrace the vision that the whole point why we are cut out of the original rock with tools of Christ's redemption is so that we can together build a temple in which he dwells and that will require a great Sacrifice and investment. Because Jesus is the true, supernatural, united nations. The real deal does not exist outside of him. And of all people in these days, if we want to bring the real kind of healing, and there's a lot of implications to this that we could unfold over the weeks. This is just talking about today in the temple. We have to be able to do it ourselves and in our city if we're going to have a gospel that means something outside of us. I don't know if I should say anything more. Let me just give some practical bits of advice here. It's a little afternoon. I'm not doing too bad. Uh, All things considered, so I'll just close with a couple of uh, very practical points. Number one, Please listen to the message of the gospel that I'm trying to explain to you. Scripture does it much better. Throughout Romans, the latter chapters, especially 9 through 12, Ephesians. Uh, Let's catch the vision that the gospel creates new family. Okay, in your heart, in our hearts, there has to be a convictional infusion of of the Spirit. Because it's like, theologically, I get it. That's even kind of cool what you're saying. But to, but to have it as a conviction takes prayer and it takes Holy Spirit revelation. So that's why I constantly pray this for us so that when something like this is taught or read, we'll catch it in the inside so it becomes conviction in real life rather than just, yeah, I agree with that. It, it has to become in our spirit so it becomes our behavior. So we make adjustments to build the house of God. So please, let's pray for one another. Let's meditate on these things. I would even say, it's uh, pray in tongues. Because 
praying in a foreign language that's either angelic or human that you don't know has an effect on uniting the body of Messiah. I always see, it's interesting, Paul says, when he says edify, you know, when you pray in a tongue, you edify yourself. When you prophesy, you edify the church. That's terminology to build a house. It doesn't mean just edify and encourage. It means construct. So it's kind of like tongues is when you're at the quarry. You're doing work. It's kind of, it's kind of noisy. And it's interesting, Paul says, don't speak in tongues when you're together unless there's an interpreter. It's like there has to be kind of hush on tongues. Not that it's, it's not allowed in public, but it has to be accompanied by an interpretation or not. So it's almost like a metallic sound unless it's interpreted. Because when you're separate, you can cut the rock. But when you're together, you use the gifts that fit you together. So even if on your own, you're giving a greater value to praying in tongues, I believe that will help. But remember, every stone is cut to fit together. So let's also remember that we're exercising the Spirit in ways that will bring us together when we come together. So meditation, Spirit of Wisdom, praying for one another, praying in tongues... Um, just let's maintain the vision that the gospel creates family. Amen? That's what the church is. It's not an institution. It's not something we attend. Praise God. It's father-born, Christ-centered, spirit-filled family. That's good. That's what the church is. It's not something different than that. That's really good. Father-born, Christ-centered, spirit-filled family. Okay, I already talked about praying in tongues. I'd recommend that. The other obvious thing, let's cultivate our relationships. If we get together once a week to share the Spirit, then let's maybe add a time a week where we can share fellowship and just get to know one another, just to make it practical. Maybe just add one other time per week. I know that it's difficult to do that. Maybe you can't do it every week, maybe every other week, but something to actually build the house of God. Remember, it's not just for our own pleasure. It's for his name to be famous in his city with his tower or temple being built. And then out of that, I believe, I know for a fact that it will generate a powerful gospel message to bring the same spirit of reconciliation that we have, at least to some degree among us, because we'll always be growing, but it can then bring the message of reconciliation outside of us. And I'm not saying we have to wait for that. I'm just speaking on this topic today, so I'm keeping it here. But this is what will very naturally translate into mission. Because of the love that starts to overflow, we won't be, there'll be divine appointments as well as compulsion from within to share more naturally and to harvest souls more naturally than we already are. I believe that. Now, I'm not saying we're not going to be deliberate. We may have to take conscious steps to do certain things but the love is going to overflow. And the Spirit's going to be speaking and acting in our midst. Our city needs us. It's got to go beyond this, but we have to do what we can where we can reach. And if God can say it for a corrupt people with evil intent, if they're unified, nothing is impossible for them. How much more in Christ will he say, if you let me build my temple, nothing will be impossible for you. It will be God's tower and God's city in our city. We'll be able to do anything he wants us to do. We might get some bumps, bruises, and cuts along the way, but we'll symbolize God and embody God in our city. So, Father, thank you for this time together to share and enjoy your presence and the word of Jesus Christ in our midst. We call on you right now for grace. For me, Lord, this is really cool to talk about. These ideas and words are some of the best thoughts I believe I could ever have. And so it's a great joy and privilege to think about them and talk about them and to work toward them together. And yet it's more than concepts, Lord, as much as we enjoy talking about it. To build it takes a grace, Lord, that we need from you. Even though we're already willing, we already get it, 
we still need more grace to do this because we're talking about things that are beyond us and um, th- th- it's your dream and we want to fulfill your dream. So we're asking for practical wisdom, practical knowledge, practical power to build this temple that shines and grows incorporating others constantly. We ask you for grace to do this in our midst, in our work, but not for our work's sake, but for the sake of other works and the saints and the lost in this city. For this grace we pray, begin to stir, talk to, pour out your spirit upon each of us, even those who couldn't join us today, in new ways to renew us and prepare us like stones at the quarry to be built together in a temple, God. Begin to put new levels of ownership on each one of us so that we will be careful how we build. Not by avoiding building, but by building with care. Lord, we don't want to take care by being passive. We want to, we want to build, we want to take care by being holy, but still building. So give us grace for that. Build your tower temple in your city for your name raise up the city church of every ethnic and every other possible human background so that christ may be revealed as the one who defeated the powers of the air that divide us and blends us together in a way no rally, no protest, no council, no secular United Nations, no law could possibly ever bring people together. Jews and Gentiles, Jesus, do it only your way so that your name may be glorified. Take us up in the whirlwind of your power to do this so that we might be in union with you for it. Jesus is King, born of the Virgin, lived in taught in the Spirit of God, crucified on Calvary, raised from the dead, ascended on high, poured out His Spirit, coming again. He is King. He deserves this. In His name we pray. Amen.